Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel. And hello, Brian. How are things in Idaho? A little wintry still, <laughs> against my better wishes. I understand you have a little more favorable uh, weather where you are. Well, I don't know if I'd say favorable. It's hot, hot and humid. It's 81 degrees. They're supposed to get that way today here, and it was yesterday. But a couple of days ago, it was down below freezing, and next week it's supposed to be down in the 30s again. So very, very much fluctuating here. And when I was feeding my horse this morning, I noticed... He still had a very thick winter coat, which he grows every year. And so I was telling him, you know, it's warm today, but before you shed that coat, you know, it could get cold again. And before you shed your winter coat, I suggest you think about that. <laughs> I don't know how much he thinks about it, but... Hopefully he'll take your advice. Well, he's 33 years old, so he's seen 33 winters, and so he should know something. Now, we're, we're still working our way through the Ten Commandments. And, uh, exactly. This is, boy, today you're going to be talking about one, though, that, uh, that has apparently gone out of fashion for a lot of the world. Tell us about it. Well, you may recall that way, way back in the 1950s, there was a movie that circulated widely and still showed many times on rerun television and so on, the Ten Commandments. It was by, produced by Cecil B. DeMille, and there are a few things we learned from this movie. One of the things we learned was that Moses will or always looked a great deal like Charlton Heston and Pharaoh like Ewell Brenner, but some will talk about maybe a few historical inaccuracies in the movie, and some of those are disputed, but one thing... Clearly, Cecil B. DeMille treated God and the Bible and the Ten Commandments with a great deal of reverence. And I'll give him a great deal of credit for that. But a lot of people don't realize that in the original uncut version, at the beginning of the movie, you see Cecil B. DeMille actually stepping out on stage. And he's just wearing a business suit. And he has some introductory things to say about the Ten Commandments. He says, ladies and gentlemen, young and old, this may seem an unusual procedure, but we have an unusual subject, the birth of freedom, the story of Moses. The theme of this picture is whether men ought to be ruled by God's laws or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of the dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state? Or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues throughout the world today. And just as we saw that battle taking place when this movie came out in the 1950s, and we were dealing with the threat of Soviet communism and Chinese communism and other forms of communism around the world, we're seeing the same threat today as we're seeing the challenge to freedom from communism and China and the like, from a dictatorship in Russia, from the 
forces of radical Islam, we're still seeing this battle between dictatorship and freedom. But when we talk about freedom, how does that come into context with the Ten Commandments? Seems to me, or it might seem to a lot of people, I should say, that the Ten Commandments talk about prohibitions, things that you cannot do. And as far as the commandment we're going to look at today, thou shalt not commit adultery, didn't we just go through a big sexual revolution a few decades ago that was supposed to liberate us from the strictures of this commandment and similar restrictions on our liberties? Well, that's the way a lot of people see it. But I'm going to say flatly, they are wrong. And if you look to the commandment itself, the commandment is very clear. We find it in Exodus 20, verse 14, and then repeat it again in Deuteronomy 5, thou shalt not commit adultery. Nothing ambiguous about that, although I've seen Ten Commandments plaques where the word adultery is misspelled, and I'm told there was actually a King James Bible printed in the 1800s in which the word not was left out of that commandment. A mistake, I hope. But at any rate, the commandment is stated with no reason given because no reason is actually needed. You know, many of the commandments, like commandments such as, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain because the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, for in six days God created, and so on. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the earth. Many, there's a reason given for it. But in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, there is no reason given for this commandment. Now, some try to say that this commandment is abrogated in the New Testament because the New Testament is an age of grace rather than law. And besides that, people will say, you look to Jesus in the Temple Mount area there when they came to him with the woman who was taken in adultery, and Jesus forgave her. Well, let's think about what happened there. First of all, he is teaching there, and scribes and Pharisees bring to him a woman who they say was caught in the very act of adultery which I assume is correct, but it is also a setup because, as we know, if they caught her in the act of adultery, they would have caught the man in the act of adultery as well, and yet he's not brought before Jesus in this case. So clearly they're bringing this woman to Jesus for the reason of setting him up in a way that they're hoping they can get rid of him. And you have to understand that Stoning somebody to death, the death penalty in general, which was prescribed in some cases, including adultery in the Old Testament. But the Jews are now under Roman law, and the Romans will not allow the Jews to commit capital punishment without it being approved by a Roman court. And so, as they bring the woman before Jesus, and they're asking, she was caught in the very act of adultery, And the law says, Moses says that she's to be stoned for this, but what do you say? 
well, they're hoping they can catch him in a dilemma. And if he answers yes, stoner to death, then they can immediately go to the Romans and say, Jesus is violating Roman law. He's telling us to stone this woman to death without coming before you for approval. And Jesus will be arrested by the Romans. Or if he says, no, don't stone her, then they'll go to the people and say, see, he's not a holy man. He even believes adulterers should be forgiven. And so either way, they think they have a dilemma. But notice what Jesus does. He bends down and he writes in the dust. Now, what he wrote in the dust, nobody knows. Some think maybe he wrote down the other commandments of the Old Testament as a way of reminding these people that nobody is without sin. Some think maybe he was writing down the sins that he knew of each of the people who were present. All those are possibilities. There may be others. And then he said to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And notice the reaction. They leave. And interestingly enough, they leave in accordance with age. The oldest ones leave first. Maybe they're more likely to recognize their own sins. And the youngest ones leave last. But they leave. And then Jesus is now alone with the woman. And he says to her, who now condemns you? And she says, no man, sir. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice he didn't say, that's all Old Testament stuff. Forget about it. Go live your own lifestyle, whatever turns you on. No, he says it's a sin. Go and sin no more. He loved her. He loved her enough that he died for her sin. But he still called it a sin and made no exceptions about that. That that commandment applies today. Let's talk more about it after our break. Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and exploring the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Dealing with this woman who was taken in adultery, the command still applies today, and no reason is given for the command. No reason needs to be given, but plenty of reasons for it exist. It is a very serious problem because God gave a remedy for it. You know, God implanted a sexual urge within us, and that sexual urge is dangerous. And because of the dangers of it, God prescribed marriage in which that desire may be fulfilled. It doesn't do the same for stealing 
or for murder or for any other offenses in the Ten Commandments, but he prescribes this specifically for the issue of sexual sin. He prescribes marriage in which the sexual desire may be fulfilled. But there are severe consequences to adultery. It breaks up families. The family is the most basic institution created by God. God created the family before he created either the church or the state. It causes heartbreak in everyone involved. It involves stealing from a person that which is most precious to that person, the affection of his or her spouse. It causes children to grow up without parents, breaks up families. It causes non-support because it creates uncertainty about paternity. And, you know, if a husband is uncertain whether a child in his family is really his child, he may disfavor that child or may be less likely to support that child. If the child is not the father of the husband, is it? child of an outside lover, that outside lover is less likely to support the child. And so children grow up without fathers or confused as to who their father is. They grow up with non-support. It can lead to health consequences, venereal disease, of course, AIDS, other things like this. And it repeats itself in succeeding generations, families in which there has been infidelity, their children see that model, and the model is likely to be repeated. As we look to not only this issue, but as we look to the question about same-sex marriage, living outside of marriage, so many things like this. And by the way, more and more studies are now showing that cohabiting before marriage does not lead to a stable marriage. It's much more likely to lead to a marriage that is going to be broken up soon. But as to the effect on society as a whole, there are a couple of very important studies about this. And strangely, I have never seen these cited by the courts as they're dealing with these issues. We have raised them in several of the amicus briefs that we filed in cases involving same-sex marriage and things like this. But there was a most interesting study from the 1930s. It was by Dr. J.D. Unwin, U-N-W-I-M. He was a professor of sociology in Oxford and Cambridge. And he had researched over a 100 different civilizations or cultures, perhaps I should say. Some of them advanced civilizations, some of them primitive, some of them present some of them older or even ancient. And he wanted to find out what is it that causes some civilizations to grow, to advance, to become more advanced in economics and technology and other areas like that, while others remain primitive. What is it that causes some to become advanced, to break up and fall back into barbarism or savagery? or from prosperity to poverty. And he said, there is one constant among those that advance and those that stay advanced. And that is that they confine the sexual urge to heterosexual 
monogamous marriage. Now, as to why that is, Unwin's theory was that there is a certain sexual energy that if it is properly channeled, it leads to a great deal of creativity and advance. And if it is allowed to dissipate, then civilization in that whole society tends to dissipate as well. There was another study in the 1950s by a professor at Harvard, professor of sociology by the name of Carl Zimmerman, and his book was titled Family and Civilization. And what he did in his study is to look to the way societies regarded marriage, both historically and at present. And he said that there are some societies that see marriage as a sacred trust between two people and the society they live in and their children and perhaps God as well. And this is more than just something for their own pleasure, but it is a sacred trust and a binding obligation for all time. And then there are others who view marriage simply as a contract. Contracts that people enter into for their own mutual pleasure or gratification or benefit, and which those parents, or either of them, feels free to abandon that marriage contract whenever he or she decides it's not serving the purpose anymore and it isn't giving me pleasure anymore, it isn't to my advantage anymore, or I found something better. And he found that the societies that see marriage as a sacred trust are much more likely to be stable and much more likely to be prosperous, successful, and advanced than those that see marriage as simply a contract that they can break whenever they want to break it. There is another writer on this, J.O. Dykes, a doctor of divinity, who explained the reason behind all of this. And what Dykes had to say, I think, is very much worth reading here. He says that marriage, when it's properly understood, is not just a civil contract. It is trust. Trust between two people and their children and others. And to quote him, he says, it shows no less the extreme consequence of associating the strongest and most necessary of all appetites with a whole cluster of higher moral and social affections before it can be worthy of human beings. The union of true husband and wife in holy wedlock involves a crowd of complex elements, many of which touch the spiritual nature. It assumes a marriage of true minds for That is not a good marriage, which is not first a union of souls before the twain become one flesh. It reposes a mutual esteem. It presupposes common tastes and establishes a most perfect system of common interests. It is to begin with a friendship, although the closest of all friendships. It leads to a noble dependence of weakness upon strength, in a chivalrous guardianship of strength over weakness. It asks for a self-renunciation on the part of each to the welfare of the other, which is the very perfection of disinterested love. It engages principle and honor to sustain your inclination and raises what would otherwise be the passion of an hour 
into a permanent devotion by means of all this, the nobler social and moral obligations are enlisted in the service of love. So there emerges that lofty ideal of chaste wedded affection, which lies in the chief poetry of common lives. J.D. Dykes. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law talking today about the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Right now in my country churches, I'm preaching through the minor prophets. And at the present time, we're going through Hosea, fascinating prophet. And you recall that Hosea's whole life is presented as a picture of God's relationship with Israel. Hosea and his wife, Gomer, who he is commanded to take out of harlotry, she has been a harlot in the past, and she repeatedly leaves him back to her old ways of prostitution. And yet, Hosea repeatedly goes into the slave market of sin and brings her out and brings her back into his household. A picture of God and the way God related to Israel and the way he relates to us today. But when we look to the picture then of adultery, what Hosea is saying here is that there is a close relationship between physical adultery and spiritual idolatry. In fact, idolatry is spiritual adultery, you might say, forsaking the God that we are married to and going after strange gods itself. Now, the extent of the commandment is to what covers. Some people argue about whether it simply means the physical act of adultery or whether anything less than that is not simply adultery. But Jesus makes it very clear that it goes beyond the physical. And he says in Matthew 5 and verses 27 through 28, Ye have heard that it has been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman with lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. One of the things that Jesus does is, he doesn't abrogate the Old Testament laws, rather he looks into their deeper meaning, and gives them a meaning beyond what they were originally thought to have. And adultery is not simply the physical act. It is the lust after someone other than your own spouse. Now, Martin Luther once said that you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. And our nature is such that all of us are going to have occasional thoughts of that nature, but we need to stop them, we need to arrest them, and We need to get those thoughts out of our minds. And, well, the word adultery would refer to a married person having sex with somebody 
who is not his wife or her husband. There's another word, porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. But the word porneia is a broad word which includes all sorts of sexual misconduct, including fornication, which could be between two single people. It can include incest. It could include homosexuality, all sorts of sexual misconduct like that. And in Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, we are told, but fornication, porneia again, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Now, God has provided for us some help in keeping this commandment. He knows that it's a difficult commandment in some ways because we have that sexual drive within us and combine that with a sinful nature, and that leads to trouble. One of the things that he has done here is he has given us the institution of marriage in which the sexual drive is to be fulfilled. But another commandment that he's given us in 1 Corinthians 6.18 is flee fornication. Notice he never says flee murder or flee theft. He says flee fornication because that drive is stronger than you are. Persons, places, literature, things like that, that the internet, things like that, that you may be, in, may be a temptation to you. Don't just watch those things and be around those things or those persons, but be careful not to act in misconduct around them. No, stay away from them. You know, there's a story told about a man who said he had a lust for pornography. And this is back before internet porn and so on. But anyway... The problem was he, he'd walk to work. And there along the way, there was a shop that sold pornography, and he would walk past that shop, and he would see pictures in the window that would rouse his attention, and he'd go in, and he would fall prey to that particular sin. Well, anyway, so his pastor, when he's counseling about, about this, says, well, isn't there another route you could take to work where you wouldn't go by that? Well, it turned out that he was actually walking about three or four blocks outside the shortest route just so he could go by that shop. In other words, he was deliberately putting himself in temptation's way and hoping that he would have that result. But I like what Philippians says. Finally, brethren, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. I'm going to ask for about a 15-second pause. And during this pause, I'm going to ask you, don't think about pink elephants. Anything else? Don't think about pink elephants for the next 15 seconds. Okay, let's make it 10 seconds.
Okay, 10 seconds are up. Did you think about pink elephants during that time? Pretty hard not to, because our mind abhors a vacuum. You can't just say, I'm not going to think about porn. Rather, if you don't want to think about porn, you have to fill your mind with other things. God and his word. Whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, etc. Think on these things. The way to avoid thinking about porn is to think about that which is good. Now, when you think about the freedom that comes from a command like this, just think about how free it makes us. That you don't have to be constantly worrying about whether your wife is being faithful to you or whether your husband is being faithful. If you know that we have this command and that you're living according to this command, and in other words, this command, like all of the commands of the Ten Commandments, is a great source of freedom. I'd like to just mention one thing else here that the West Virginia Supreme Court case of Moore versus Strickling in 1899 involved a man who was a state employee, had a very responsible job with state, and he was fired for having solicited a prostitute. And he said, that's not a basis for firing me. State law said that he could be fired for an offense of moral turpitude. And he said, well, that's a matter of just mixing morality there with Law, that's not appropriate here. He went to the West Virginia Supreme Court, and the West Virginia Supreme Court said that, yes, indeed, soliciting a prostitute, committing adultery, that is a crime of moral turpitude, because it's prohibited by the Ten Commandments. And the court said, West Virginia Supreme Court, 1899, these commandments, which, like a collection of diamonds, bear testimony to their own intrinsic worth, in themselves appeal to us as coming from a superhuman or divine source. And no conscientious or reasonable man has yet been able to find a flaw in them. Absolutely flawless, negative in terms, but positive in meaning, they easily stand at the head of our whole moral system. And no nation or people can long continue a happy existence in open violation of them point to be made in all of this is that, yes, the Ten Commandments are definitely relevant to our society today. At one time, adultery was illegal in all 50 states, and I'm afraid those laws have gone by the wayside with the sexual revolution. But when you think about that sexual revolution, you wonder why there is so many claims of sexual harassment today. Well, there were some original standards of morality on this. We laughed at those. We tore down the barriers. And now that the barriers are torn down, we're seeing the consequences today. And the results should have been foreseen long ago. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we're with Colonel John Eitzmo of the Foundation for Moral Moral Law. 
Colonel, I know there are some current events going on that uh, you wanted to uh, take some time to address in today's program, and here's our opportunity to do so. All right, as we're recording this, it is Thursday morning, the 24th of February. 24 hours ago, I would have addressed this somewhat different from the way I'm going to address it right now. Because 24 hours ago, I would not have expected that the events that have taken place would have taken place exactly as they have. And as far as Putin is concerned, you know, Putin is the head of Russia, and his duty is to make Russia a great country. And in a sense, maybe he's doing what he's supposed to be doing for Russia, but that doesn't mean we in America have to approve. I kind of look at it this way. If I get into bed and a rattlesnake in my bed bites me, I'm not going to be mad at the rattlesnake for doing what rattlesnakes are designed to do. I'm going to be mad at whoever let him into my room. And I blame that squarely on liberals here in the United States. And I'm going to begin with Bill Clinton. Now, really, the history of Ukraine goes way, way back before that. We can talk about the Vikings like Rurik and Valdemar, or his name in Ukraine was Vladimir, or others that go back to the history of Kiev and its relationship with Moscow and Russia. Or we can even go back to Ivan the Terrible and his desire to make Kiev or Moscow into the third Rome, as he called it. The first Rome was Rome, and it fell, and the second Rome was Constantinople. And when Constantinople fell, then the third Rome was to be further north and further east, that is, Kiev and Moscow and Russia, Holy Russia, as they call it. But let's go back into the 1990s. Now, you recall that we are just in the the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. At this time, we had two major nuclear superpowers in the world, the United States and Russia. And maybe some dispute as to which was the greater superpower. They had more nukes than we did, but ours were probably more powerful and could be more accurate. The third great nuclear power in the world at that time was not Britain or Pakistan or China, it was Ukraine. Ukraine had 500 nuclear warheads left over from the Soviet era. And under pressure from Bill Clinton, the Ukraine reluctantly agreed to surrender those so they would be a non-nuclear power. Russia received most of them. And in return for this, the United States made an agreement that if the sovereignty or security of Ukraine was ever threatened, we would give them whatever aid they needed to defend their security. I think we have an obligation to keep our promises. Well, what is going on over there, I'm just amazed at the shallowness of the American media as they report on this. And frankly, this includes our conservative media. They don't go into the history or geography of the area at all. But Ukraine, as you probably know, borders on, the, on Russia. And you have several eastern provinces, like, for example, Donetsk, and then Crimea, Odessa, and some of that area, that is heavily Russian in population. In fact, the people there speak Russian. And their sentiments are pretty strongly pro-Russian. There was an election, and I believe it was 2014, in 
the Crimea as to whether or not they should stay in Ukraine or become more aligned with Russia. 90 plus percent voted to be aligned with Russia, and that's out of about 80 plus percent that voted. There are some questions about the validity of that vote, but it does certainly show there is strong Russian sentiment there. Now, when I was lecturing on constitution reform, there are one of the things that I suggested is maybe they ought to make Donetsk and the Crimea independent, not independent exactly, but semi-autonomous oblasts, kind of like Canada within the United Kingdom at one time. They did not want to do that for obvious, understandable reasons, but had they done so, then maybe these areas would not have been the threat they are now. They have now declared themselves to be separatist republics, and they are seeking the support of Russia against Ukraine, and understandably, Russia might want to support them. But this does not justify a total all-out assault on the entire nation of Ukraine, including Kiev, the capital, which is kind of in the north-central part, and then areas like Lviv to the west that are very anti-Russian and anti-communist, very pro-Western. And anyway, so this complete assault that is going on right now is not at all justified under international law, under previous treaties and agreements, as to how Crimea became part of Ukraine, it's kind of strange, but Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine back in 1954. And exactly why is not clear, but it appears probably it was to try to cement Ukraine's loyalty to the Soviet Union. It was one of the Soviet republics at that time, of course. And, but anyway, they may regret having done so now, but it was done. And Anyway, so the pro-Russian sentiment that exists in the Crimea, that exists in the East, is certainly maybe a basis for negotiation, but certainly not justification for military action in support of them, let alone as an assault on the entire nation. Now, what is the United States to do at this point? And well, maybe we could have some discussion on that, but we're hearing discussion among liberals and conservatives both, we need to have sanctions. Oh, was, no, no, that's not enough. Well, what do we need? Oh, we need severe sanctions. No, that, that's not enough. That won't do it. What do we, well, we need extreme sanctions. Frankly, Putin doesn't care about sanctions. If we even cut him off of the SWIFT banking system, he'll still be able to withdraw from that then and develop an alternate system with China and Iran and other countries like that that are already thinking about doing that anyway. This may just hasten that. And so that's not going to accomplish anything. I'm not advocating that we send in American troops, and Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is not even asking for that. But I am thinking and perhaps my prejudice as an Air Force officer comes in, that air support would be appropriate. And when we see these Soviet tanks rolling over the border and coming down toward Kiev and so on, air support could certainly knock them out. It could certainly freeze the current air superiority that Russia has over Ukraine right now. But one thing we need to remember, too, is that the Ukrainians are a powerful nation, much more so than we might think. And they have a strong commitment to their independence. Back when there was a pro-Russian government there that 
the people, the majority there in Ukraine didn't like. Shortly before I came, which was probably around 2015, there had been a mass shooting by the Russian, pro-Russian government, and about 100 martyrs that fell in that shooting there in Liberty Square. There in Liberty Square, you will see monuments to each of these around the square there with symbols from the Orthodox Church and so on of each of these. And then you will see piles of bricks. These are symbolic because what the people of Ukraine did at that point is they fought against the pro-Russian government, the pro-Russian tanks, just picking up bricks from the street to fight. That shows you something of the kind of commitment these people have. They have a strong, well-disciplined, well-organized army. In addition to that, they have volunteer militias that number in the area of about 150,000 that are well-motivated to fight, that were fighting actively against the pro-Soviet government at that time and are being remobilized right now. And they also have what's called the diaspora, that is over a million Ukrainians who are dispersed throughout the world, many in the United States, and they're calling upon them for support. Ukraine is able to put up a fight, and it may have to be a protracted conflict. But I'm thinking back to George Washington. And remember his strategy for winning American independence. Now, Washington knew that in an all-out conflict, America could never whip England. And we, we didn't have the manpower. We didn't have the military training. England had the power to whip the United States. There was no question about that. If it came to an all-out war, Washington's tactic, rather, was to make the war more costly than England was willing to pay for. And that's exactly what won us the war, that protracted conflict. And that's how I think the Ukrainians can win this, by making this more expensive to Russia than Russia is willing to put up those costs. But they need American air support to get this done, and I hope we provide it. Thank you.